Welcome to the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the future of farming, food, and nutrition. I'm talking with Rodolf Barangu, a professor in the Department of Food, Bioprocessing, and Nutrition Sciences at North Carolina State University. Dr. Barangu is engaged in probiotics research in the university's Department of Food, Bioprocessing, and Nutrition Sciences, focusing on the evolution and functions of CRISPR-Cas systems and their applications in bacteria used in food manufacturing. We thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And first, if you would uh, indulge us a quick primer, what is CRISPR-Cas9 technology? So in nature, CRISPR is the adaptive immune system in bacteria. And what scientists have done is repurpose the molecular machines from this primitive immune system in bacteria and turn that into a technology used for genome editing. And essentially, those molecular machines are equivalent to scalpels or razors that can specifically, efficiently, and accurately target DNA and cut it. And what happens when you cut DNA is that the endogenous DNA repair pathways come in and repair the DNA cut. And precisely at the point of cleavage of that DNA, the repair pathway will change the DNA sequence. This is why it's called genome editing. You are rewriting, you are altering, you are changing the DNA code precisely at the site of cleavage, which means now you can rewrite any genome you want, any way you want. And can this be done in real time in living organisms? So this can be done across the tree of life. You can do that in primitive things like bacteria or viruses or yeast, small organisms and microorganisms. And you can do that in any type of cell in which you can deliver DNA. We can talk about crops, plants. We can talk about animals. And we can talk about mammals like humans. So let's imagine we might want to enhance the genetic code of crops, or livestock, or even people. Uh, so do you just snip this unwanted gene out in a crop, animal, or person and replace it with a good one? Or if you could walk us through how a CRISPR change is made in a living being. So if you think of DNA as the book of life, right? You can do a word version of genetics. You can control F and look for any sequence you want. Let's say a faulty gene that you don't like in a patient or a trait you don't like in a particular plant or an animal. You can look for that sequence, find it, and cut it. And once you cut it, you can do the edit that you want. You can remove it and take it out. You can replace it with another variant, another version, another allele. So if you think you have a typo, for example, in your genetic code, you can correct that typo to the right version. Or you can actually take a word out or take a whole sentence out or add a word or add a sentence, which means that you don't just change a gene. You can take out a gene. You can add a gene. And then CRISPR technologies are sophisticated enough to not just alter the genetic writing, but also the punctuation. You can change how loud genes are expressed. You can make them very quiet, or you can make them very loud. You can change the structure of DNA as well. So it's not just changing the letters per se, it's changing the punctuation and the narration of that genetic code. So can these edited genes be passed down through generations? So it depends what you edit. Um, so in humans, for example, or same in animals, 
you can just alter cells that are in tissues and organs throughout the body that you don't pass on. And just a patient, and sometimes even just a portion of the patient, or just one organ in the animal, or one particular tissue type in the plant will be altered, depending on how you deliver it. Alternatively, you can alter DNA at the embryonic stage during the reproduction process, in vivo or in vitro, and then you can change all the cells in an organism, which means that the next generation thereof will carry those changes. So you can do either or, or you can do both. Okay, this is really profound. <laughs> if, if I can walk you back a little bit in time to when you first heard about this and began to investigate it, it, it must have been mind-blowing. So actually, I, I'm one of the few people in the world who work on CRISPR long before it was famous. Mm. So my, my first CRISPR patent dates all the way back to 2004, maybe the dark ages or, you know, the middle ages or the prehistoric <laughs> era for CRISPR. And at the time, you know, people really didn't care much what CRISPR was or how it worked or what it did in nature. That being said, though, in the past five years, we've seen a transformative, disruptive evolution of that technology. Because the CRISPR science, again, which in, in nature is an adaptive immune system in bacteria that enables them to cut DNA of viruses and invasive sequences, has been repurposed for a different role mm -hmm. to edit the DNA of pretty much any species or organism you can think of. And this is where the awe comes from. This is where the mind-boggling, quote-unquote, implications come into play because now it's not just a cool idiosyncratic biological phenomenon. It is a very powerful technology and a very enabling technology that doesn't just enable scientists in academia to do those things, but pretty much any average level PhD geneticist across the world to tinker with the DNA of the organisms they're interested in. And there are tremendous business implications, commercial implications, but also societal implications and ethical implications with regards to how this powerful technology should or should not be used and should or should not be regulated and should or should not be harnessed. That's where I wanted to go with the conversation. What do you think? The technology seems to have a way of staying way ahead of regulation. What's your guess on this? Is regulation going to catch up quickly or um, is the ethical debate and the regulatory debate still... Uh, in its infancy? It's still relatively early. Um, mm -hmm. Science, especially when it's disruptive and enabling and cool and powerful, will outpace the progress of regulation and engagement and progress of a productive dialogue with society, with the consumers, with the government, with the regulatory agencies. This is what I call the highway of science. And essentially, as you build that highway, and you develop the next frontier of the path ahead, you, you never start with the guardrails. You build the road first. And there's no speed limit at the very edge. There's no signs, right? There's no indication. There's no control. That's what, this is what the scientists do. They are the cutting edge of the frontier edge mm -hmm. of technology and science. And then you have to trust that the elements and the people and the regulations and the agencies and the governments in play are doing their job and their due diligence. And there's a little bit of a delay between the time you build the road and you can open it up to the public, obviously. But those guardrails come up. They are being built for CRISPR. They have, you know, been expended upon a foundation of genetic engineering. 
and gene modification that has existed since the 70s. And there's a lot of people currently at the table that are engaging in a wise, patient, careful, mindful, but also perhaps passionate debate about what we should or shouldn't do. And I think this is one of those cases where there is so much at stake that you have to be patient and make sure that you don't rush into too quick of a decision or too quick or too big of a guardrail or a speed bump or a speed limit to, to mindfully assess how various applications of CRISPR, whether they're in humans for therapeutics or ag to fill the world or animal for next generation breeding, there, there's different implications for different industries and different groups of stakeholders. Let's bring it around to ag to feed the world. Uh, not only is the population expanding exponentially, so are the middle classes uh, of many developing countries out there. So that implies steadily increasing consumer demand for food products. Uh, and because of that, it's estimated that farmers will need to grow a lot more food on the same amount of land and with increasingly limited water resources to feed everyone. How might CRISPR become part of the solution to all of that? I mean, I would argue that the food gap lying ahead of us is, is tremendous and is very challenging. And we cannot keep increasing the yields or the quality or the sustainability of our food supply at the rate we're doing it right now because the population is increasing faster than we can address that increase in demand. Uh, as you mentioned, people spend an increasing amount of their expendable income in foods, notably protein sources and healthier food. This is where plants come in. And we are in a day and age where challenges with regards to the amount of arable land is not increasing. If anything, it's decreasing to some extent. And water supply is ever increasingly challenges, and the forecasts over the next couple of decades look very dire and concerning. Enter CRISPR to the rescue to some extent, and we now have a technology that will enable us to accelerate and improve the ease and speed with which we can generate and breed those next generation crops and animals to have not just better yield, but also better health better traits, better sustainability, and more responsible and efficient use of our water supply and our soil as well. What about public perceptions? Uh, as recently as 2016, there was a survey by Pew Research that found 39% of U.S. adults believe foods made from GMO crops, as distinguished from CRISPR-influenced crops, are not as healthy as conventional versions. Uh, even if CRISPR technology is shown to be capable of saving the planet from starvation, do you think the public will come around to accepting it? So I think to me, the science part has become the easy part. You know, it used to be very difficult to, to do those, those scientific advancements and technology development and democratizing them. And CRISPR has shown to be a, a very convenient, not very cumbersome, very powerful technology. So the science is not the bottleneck anymore. Uh, and we live in an age where consumers are concerned more and more about their health, about their food, about food safety and food security, where it comes from, what, what it consists of, and what it can do for their health or not, how we can enable them to be healthier, or how we will tilt the balance towards a less copacetic medical condition. 
Um, and we are in an age where, sadly enough, a lot of the general public doesn't have the education and intimacy they need to truly understand big science and deep science. And when we talk about genetics, when we talk about genomics, when we talk about engineering and editing and DNA cleavage and DNA repair, uh, there are many ways to harness those technologies to repurpose the nature, the natural ability of some of those organisms to correct their DNA sequences and change them in natural ways. We're not talking about transgenics. We're not talking about GMOs. We're not talking about frankenfood. We're talking about harnessing nature's power to change DNA sometimes back to what it is in nature, to a very desirable, broadly distributed, biodiverse version. Um, and, and it's hard to explain. It's hard to showcase. It's hard to disseminate. It's hard to communicate. And I think the challenge moving ahead for a lot of the breeders, whether you breed plants, whether you breed microbes and engineer them and develop them and alter them, or whether you breed animals, is really to explain to society how the science works, how the technology uh, functions, um, and then showcase the benefits that it provides, not just from a financial standpoint, but from a sustainability standpoint. And, and the ag world in general, and, and plants, the plant world in particular, suffers from this lack of trust, this perceived lack of transparency, this concerns from society about stewardship. And being a scientist, you know, working at a state institution, a land-grant university, part of my role is to educate the public and, and carry out the mission of a land-grant institution that wants to feed the world and make people healthier and better make food you know, more available, more sustainable. And, and science is there to create solutions more so than to create problems. And the difficulty is not just to do the products and deliver them, but illustrate how all those benefits from yield and pest management and water usage and land usage and resource allocation are such that we will, it's a question of time more than a question of if, be able to use those technologies to feed the world. And not just feed the people who can afford it, but perhaps feed the people who need it the most and are in the most dire situation with regard to their food supply. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recently uh, officially announced that certain gene-edited plants can be designed, cultivated, and sold free from regulation, that as long as a genetic alteration could have naturally been bred in a plant, it won't be regulated. If uh, you want to stick in genes from distant species, you still have to jump through the hoops. What sorts of applications of CRISPR technology do you envision as a result of that USDA decision? I mean, I think the, the decision made and communicated by the USDA, especially our Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, is fantastic. It is very momentous. It is very enabling. It is a good illustration of how science-based decisions you know, can occur with regulatory agencies. And globally, I quite look forward to other regulatory agencies across the planet embracing this kind of approach and, and, and condoning this kind of decision. Um, I think in terms of closing the food gap, one underappreciated, you know, easier or easy solution is preventing food waste food spoilage. 
And there's great examples already published of how we can use CRISPR to alter, for example, browning in mushrooms. If you think of the white button mushroom, uh, you know, left in the open air for too long, this very attractive whiteness, you know, in the, in the visual appeal of the mushroom will go away and be replaced with brown. And it don't, doesn't look as appetizing, doesn't look as compelling, doesn't look as tasty, and people throw away their food. Up to about 30% in general of all the food produce is wasted at the consumer level. People buy it, people spend money on it, people have it in their fridge, and they don't consume it for a variety of reasons I don't have time to go into. And again, and to CRISPR to the rescue, we can go into the gene responsible for browning and let nature change that sequence to quote-unquote knock it out and prevent browning in mushrooms, essentially extending the visual appeal of produce for the consumer that already bought it. And you can think of doing the same in apples, right? A browning apple is perfectly tasty, maybe even a little sweeter and better. Or rather than put it in a pie, you can keep it open, you can cut it and slice it and prevent browning, and the percent chance that somebody's going to consume it is higher when you do that. There's hundreds of those examples whereby, you know, you can think of browning lattice and others like this, mm -hmm. whereby we can alter naturally some of the genetic content of those plant species to extend their shelf life and their consumption. What's happening in the CRISPR industry, if you will, or at least on the research side of CRISPR? Uh, in recent years, even in recent months, has it been taking off even exponentially? I mean, the, the rise and the unleashing of the CRISPR craze quantitatively is unbelievable. In terms of cost in use, right, you can get like a CRISPR construct for $65 from not-for-profit organizations like AdGene, get that shipped to you overnight. It is very accessible and is very affordable. Um, the number of scientists that are now part of the CRISPR community has grown exponentially in the last few years. And again, organizations like AdGene have been able to ship CRISPR material, CRISPR biological and genetic contracts, uh, now in the hundreds of thousands. Wow. So we have hundreds of thousands of labs around the world and scientists around the world that have that tool in their hand. They're very creative, they're very productive, they're very passionate, and they're very excited about the potential uses and applications of that technology. At the same time, our understanding scientifically of CRISPR is likewise increasing exponentially. And within a decade, we went from a literature that was only a couple dozen articles deep to a paper published every month, to a paper published every week, now to 10 papers published every day. So our understanding of the technology, our tinkering and enhancement of that technology, which is still only five-year-olds in its infancy, is moving along at a scientific pace that is hardly precedented. And at the same time, this CRISPR craze is being fueled by wise, smart, veteran, and deep-pocketed investors who are investing in that technology and literally putting in hundreds of millions of dollars into this revolutionary technology. Uh, we've seen, you know, public IPOs, you know, initial public offerings of CRISPR companies, 
you know, mm-hmm. whose very purpose is to use that technology to cure disease. We're now seeing the second generation of CRISPR companies more in the ag space coming in to breed plants and breed animals. And I think this is just the beginning. So how long before we'll be eating CRISPR produce? So I would ask the question, how long until we eat CRISPR, firstly, and, and CRISPR being present in about half of the bacteria that are in the world? We already eat CRISPR hmm. on a regular basis. If you eat cheese, if you eat yogurt, if you eat fermented foods, CRISPR-Cas systems already inhabit our gut. They also are in the bacteria that inhabit our skin and various epithelia and our environment. So they're in our food, they're in our body, they're around. And we already have a lot of industrial applications, notably in the dairy industry, where fermented yogurt, fermented cheese have been manufactured using, you know, CRISPR enhanced in natural ways, starter cultures that turn and ferment milk into yogurt or cheese. And I mentioned the white button mushroom. There's also waxy corn and dozens of other produce species that have already been altered in the lab using CRISPR technologies that are awaiting global green light across the world to commercialize that. And now that we have the USDA's condoning of certain uses of CRISPR technologies in certain crops, uh, in very short order, we will do that. Now, we also live in a world where biohackers have readily access to those things. And we know people are doing, you know, CRISPR kale and CRISPR lattice and, you know, hipster food (laughs) that are genetically altered. And it's not a question of if or really a question of when. It's, it's how quickly this will take over a food supply chain. Mm-hmm. So let's bring this over to the human side just for a second. Uh, one of the most exciting things I've heard of late came at TED 2018 in Vancouver. Luhan Yang, uh, chief scientific officer at eGenesis, said that scientists using CRISPR to edit pig organs so they'll be accepted by humans think a breakthrough is coming that will end the organ donation waiting list, which is profound in all caps. Do you share her assessment? I mean, absolutely. First of all, she's fantastic. You know, she's a very smart, very wise, uh, very driven and, and motivated, not just scientist, but CEO of a powerful company now. She's been advised by the great George Church, and and she's putting that technology to good use, literally humanizing pigs to be able to grow human tissue. And the quest that she has to put an end to the organ donor list shortcomings and, and delays and timelines and loss of life uh, is, is a tremendous opportunity to alleviate pain, alleviate suffering and correct diseases in a very diversified group of patients that are afflicted by a number of different diseases that are problematic and life-threatening. And again, they are moving at a pace that is mind-boggling. You know, I would say they're more than halfway already towards achieving their goal in a very short amount of time. And they're well-equipped, they're well-funded, they are driven, and they have all the ingredients that need to be successful. And, um, and I, I think, you know, the scientific hurdles are coming down one at a time. The question will be, you know, how will regulators um, manage this? You know, how will the FDA uh, manage that? 
uh, how ready or equipped are they or not today to do it? And then eventually, you know, how will the consumers and customers and patients take it? And if we've learned anything from the history of medicine is that when it comes to life or death, when it comes to curing diseases, patients faced with death will make the call. And we have this, you know, consenting adult medical consent forms. And if you ask for things to be done to you and your alternative is not being here anymore, I would predict that the patients will embrace those technologies when time comes. Dr. Rodolphe Barangu, a professor in the Department of Food, Bioprocessing and Nutrition Sciences at North Carolina State University. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. For show notes and more episodes, visit alltech.com forward slash agfuture.